2: Hello, you're listening to Money Talks, and I'm Rachna Schanbog, the European economics correspondent here at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, the US economy, sluggish, stretched, and another S, Professor Joseph Stiglitz, on those not enjoying the sustained period of growth.
1: Many of us think about the advantages of drawing upon a global economy. But if you don't manage it well, those at the middle or the bottom on skilled workers are going to be worse off.
2: And the economics of getting your hands on a pair of Wimbledon tickets.
3: For five or ten pounds, you can pick up a centre court or court number one ticket at 5 p.m. And if the matches are close and they're going late, then you can end up seeing hours of tennis for very little time and money, which is great. First.
2: America's expansion is now a record 121 months long. Unemployment is at a 50-year low, and equity markets at an all-time high. President Trump took to Twitter to declare that the economy is the best it has ever been. But economists are asking how long the good times can last. Government bond yields appear to be hinting at trouble ahead. And the manufacturing sector appears to be slipping. Are these signs that the economy is running out of steam? Patrick Fowles is The Economist's business affairs editor. Patrick, tell us how this expansion compares with previous ones.
4: Well, America's entering uncharted territory, at least by one measure, which is the expansion's been going on for 121 months. It makes it the longest expansion that has been since records started in the 1850s. And inevitably, it raises the question of, of whether there's going to be a recession soon, how long can things last? And those concerns have been fueled also by the fall in government bond yields, not only in the US, but also in other rich countries over the last few months, which has made the issue of how long the expansion can continue particularly uh, topical.
2: And is this purely an American story?
4: There are other countries which have broken records. Australia you know, has had, I think, the longest expansion of any advanced economy ever anywhere. And Europe's very sluggish recovery is nonetheless, I believe, reaching uh, uh, or approaching kind of record in terms of its duration. So the idea of this sluggish but stretched economic cycle seems to be one that applies particularly in the US, but also has parallels elsewhere.
2: What sorts of things could kill off the expansion?
4: Well, some of the conventional causes of recessions in the 20th century no longer look as applicable. So things like uh, manufacturing slumps and, and oil price shocks, uh, which were important then, are, are no longer so pertinent. Uh, manufacturing is not that big a share of the economy and uh, the energy intensity of the economy has fallen. Likewise, the financial triggers of the last recession a housing debt bubble and very leveraged banks. Those problems have basically been sorted out. And then you have the other cause of of 20th century recessions, which is central banks suddenly slamming on the brakes to try and control a, a kind of spiraling wage and price inflation. And again, there's not much evidence of that. Some people even think central banks have got better at their jobs. So all of that points towards new causes. Perhaps there are new kinds of risks out there. And I think the obvious ones are perhaps to do with the interconnected nature of the world and trade, different kinds of financial risks that might lie outside the banks or the mortgage system. And lastly, I think the risks surrounding uh, popular discontent with how the US economy operates um, and whether that filters through into into dramatic changes in economic policy.
2: So Patrick, do you think America is heading towards its first recession in a decade?
4: The best measures we have look back historically at at correlations with financial markets and indicators in the real economy. And they typically put the odds of a recession at the moment at about 30%. And one of the most difficult things about evaluating this is there have been so many false alarms over the last 10 years. So first people said quantitative easing by central banks would cause a, a kind of crazy inflation spiral. It didn't happen. In America, you had the slump in the shale industry. 2015, people were worried it might cause a recession. It didn't. You had the emerging markets jitters uh, about 12 months after that. And most recently, you've had the trade war, which people initially feared could precipitate a recession. hasn't. So the best guess is the odds are uh, still below 50 percent, but it's a difficult guessing game.
2: So, Patrick, one feature of the current expansion is that growth rates on average have been lower than previous expansions. Is that a problem for the economy?
4: Well, there's sort of two ways of looking at it. The kind of rosy view would be that this moderate level of growth, it's been on average about 2% in the US over this expansion, sort of allows a kind of steadier, more controlled pace, which in the long run might be better than a short, sharp cycle. I think there's two problems with that. The first is that there's a bit of evidence that a kind of very... Uh, stable but low interest environment does lead to financial risk taking that are hard to predict. And we know that the size of the financial system continues to get bigger relative to GDP, even though the banks have basically shrunk a bit. So that sense of a kind of false stability leads people to take risks in the financial system that might ultimately cause problems. The other problem with sluggish growth is that people lose confidence that the economy is capable of delivering rising living standards. And I think that feeds through into the populist mood. So sluggish wages are the kind of thing that central bankers like, but actually the population gets quite angry about.
2: Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. And you can read more on this in the upcoming edition of The Economist. Why not try a subscription at economist.com/slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds? Now, While some economists examine the bigger picture, others are thinking about the impact these expansions and recessions can have on the people living through them. Our economics editor, Henry Kerr, spoke to Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize-winning economist and professor at Columbia University, about his book, People, Power and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent. Henry started by asking Professor Stiglitz why he's so pessimistic about the state of the American economy.
1: When I talk about economic performance, it's not GDP that I really am interested in. It's how does the typical person been doing? And in those terms, the economy's performance has been dismal. The average income at the bottom... has virtually stagnated for the last quarter century. Median income of a full-time male worker is the same as it was 42 years ago. Life expectancy in the United States has been in decline for the last several years. So if you want to understand some of the political discontent in the United States, you look at those numbers and you can understand why. I know you're focused on America in the
0: book, but you do say this is a global problem. And in Britain, we've just had some happiness data that shows self-reported happiness is actually at the highest since the survey began in the 1970s. So are you making a long-term diagnosis, or do you not really believe that good news
1: story that people are telling about the economy? Certainly a lot of the kind of data that you describe is a cyclical response to the fact that the 2008 crisis is finally over and it's still the case that incomes in the United States are below what they were before the crisis. There's nothing stronger manifestation of unhappiness than a decline in life expectancy. That's symptomatic that something is not really well, no matter what people say in any survey you asked. And
0: how tightly do you think the rise in inequality is linked to the rise in populism?
1: When the era of globalization and financialization began, both parties promised that, yes, you may go through a little period of hardship, but in the long run, everybody is going to be better off. Well, 35 years is the long run, and they may not have the analytics to ask whether the promises made by somebody like Trump are actually gonna be realized. But what they do know is the promises made by those who have sector deregulation and globalization were gonna make them better off, those were not realized. I also think that the 2008 crisis has compounded the view that our system is, I don't like to use this word, rigged. Mm -hmm. It was clear that banks, were at the center of causing the crisis. And yet, Bush and Obama funneled hundreds of billions of dollars to the banks. And neither did much about those who were losing their homes. There was a sort of injustice that I think gave even more impetus to this populism.
0: I was interested that you uh, said you didn't like using the term rigged, because in the book, you use some quite frank or extreme language to describe the situation in American politics, which almost paints it really to the reader as a sort of corrupt kleptocracy. And I'm wondering if you really think that sort of language is how we should be describing American politics. Isn't America still doing a lot better than a truly corrupt place?
1: I think it's pretty corrupt. And I think most Americans realize that it's pretty corrupt. And what I try to document in the book is that a proportion of those who become very wealthy in the United States have become wealthy, not by adding to the size of the economic pie, but by grabbing for themselves a larger share. In a way, the person that America elected as president exemplifies this kind of exploitation. You know, he's extreme, but he typifies a strand which is all too strong in American economics. Let's
0: talk about the proposed solutions you're putting forward to the problems you set out. In quite a striking description in the book, you say that the solutions are essentially easy from an economic perspective, hard from a political perspective. Uh, That's quite a bold claim, if I may say so. (laughs) So uh, what, what are the easy solutions you have up your sleeve?
1: At a very broad level, I talk about the need for a new social contract between the citizens, their government, civil society. But part of that is we need new antitrust laws. Our companies have been very innovative, including innovation in ways that amplify their market power. So that's just one example. How do we create a more competitive economy? Financial sector. Dodd-Frank passed in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. Most economists realized didn't go far enough in ensuring that the financial sector actually serves society. But since then, that was 2010... There's been a concerted effort to weaken the Dodd-Frank bill, and a lot of the protections have actually been stripped away. A third example is globalization. You know, many of us think about the advantages of drawing upon a global economy. But if you don't manage it well, those at the middle or the bottom unskilled workers are going to be worse off. We didn't manage it well.
0: You touch there on the effects of globalization on workers who lost their jobs. You say you still support free trade in the whole. How does free trade need to change to deal with a desire for good middle class jobs that goes beyond just compensation, which is perhaps the more standard
1: economic view of this? To understand the way in which globalization has eviscerated the middle class, there are two issues. Unemployment is one, but the downward pressure on wages is the other. The reason that that has occurred is that the bargaining power of workers has been undermined. And it's been undermined for a couple of reasons. One of them is labor legislation that has weakened the bargaining power of unions. The other one is investment agreements that basically say you can make investments abroad – And they will be as secure or even more secure property rights than if you made investments in the United States. Well, what were you doing when you did that? What you were doing is saying not creating a level playing field. You were actually saying to corporations, go invest abroad. And you were saying to workers at home, by the way, unless you take a big wage cut, our corporations are so much better investing abroad that your jobs are going to be precarious.
0: Do you see yourself as someone who calls for incremental change or do you see yourself as someone calling for radical change for us to tear down the whole system and rebuild it in a new manner?
1: It's somewhere between those two. <laughs> so it's not radical. The things that I've been asking for, like more competition, a financial sector that serves society, a globalization that is fairer and is better regulated, is capitalism. But it's the way capitalism is supposed to be. And going from the way capitalism is, which is exploitive, towards this progressive capitalism where everybody has the potential, that's a radical change, but it's not tearing down the house root and branch. It's reconstructing it from the way that was supposed to have been designed in the first place.
0: Jay Stiglitz, thank you very much. Thank you.
2: And finally, how can you make sure you find yourself tucking into a bowl of strawberries and cream at Wimbledon's centre court? Well, understanding the economics behind the ticket sales might just improve your chances. The Economist's Wall Street correspondent, Alice Forward, is a huge fan of Wimbledon and she thinks she's worked out the best strategy to get yourself a ticket. Hi Alice. Hello Ratna. Tell us how one goes about getting a Wimbledon ticket.
3: So there are three main ways you can get tickets to Wimbledon. One is that you just have to have sort of a lot of money. There is a resale market for some holders of Wimbledon tickets and they can sell a pair of tickets that they have rights to for five years. They're called debenture holders. But those tend to be very, very expensive. They sort of run into the thousands of pounds. So they aren't really an option for most people. The other way is that you can be lucky. There's a public ballot every year that closes on. On December 31st the year before and you can get lucky enough to win tickets through that ballot but it's massively oversubscribed every year and so it's quite chancy and the other way you can get tickets is with a lot of patience you can queue up each day for ground tickets for Wimbledon which cost 20 pounds and there is also a chance on every day of the tournament apart from the last four to get tickets to the show court so the main centre court court one tickets if you get there early enough
2: Give us a sense of how much the ticket prices can vary.
3: So if you queue up and you manage to get access to a centre court ticket, they start as cheaply as £70 for the early days of the tournament and then climb to around £140 for the days towards the end as the matches get closer to the final. Ground tickets are just £20, and if you were to try and buy those outright, you would end up spending thousands of pounds instead.
2: And a common strategy seems to be for people to camp out at Wimbledon. How many people do that a year?
3: If you want a chance to win those centre or court number one tickets each day, camping is basically your only option. There are 500 centre court tickets and 500 court number one tickets available each day, apart from the last four and in order to sort of guarantee access to one of those you really do need to get there many many hours in advance. You'll see people starting to queue for tickets that they want for a certain day of the tournament one or two days in advance. I think the first person to join the queue this year joined 36 hours before the start of the tournament and in terms of how many people do that there are hundreds in the queue every day and not yet thousands that might cause the stewards some problems but um, thousands more join the queue on the day of the tournament. The latest I've ever been was sort of 5pm one day and I was the Twelve thousand person in the queue that day.
2: Wow! And you're a huge fan of Wimbledon. Tell us about your winning strategy.
3: There are a couple of strategy tips I can give you. The first one would be if you're sort of desperate and you, you aren't willing to risk any uncertainty, you probably should camp for your Centre Court tickets. But if you're trying to minimise the amount of time you spend queuing and still manage to get access to a Centre Court ticket, my preferred strategy is if you go late in the day and buy a sort of cheap ground ticket, they fall to £12 if you go in the afternoon, and then you can join the resale queue inside. So. Wimbledon scans the tickets of people leaving the grounds and will resell those tickets. All the proceeds of those go to charity. So for 5 or £10, pounds, you can pick up a Centre Court or a Court number 1 ticket at 5pm in the evening in Wimbledon. And if the matches are close and they're going late, then you can end up seeing hours of tennis for very little time and money, which is great.
2: So rather than turning up hours and hours before, you just turn up a little later in the day.
3: Well, I have turned up hours and hours before as well. I've employed both strategies, but I am keener on tennis than our average economist listener. So in terms of the optimal strategy for spending minimal time and money, I would suggest turning up later in the day. If you're a tennis nut and you want to see matches all day, then purchasing a tent is probably the best way to go about it.
2: So Alice, we've saved money on a ticket. Now we're in the grounds what are your tips for making our money go even further?
3: If you're sort of trying to minimise on cash spent once you're inside as well, then actually strawberries and cream is a pretty good deal. It only costs £2.50. The real expensive traditional Wimbledon item in the grounds would be PIMS. That's £8.50 per cup. But you can actually bring in your own pre-mixed. Unfortunately, if you do that, it will be quite warm and not as pleasant. But if you're willing to forgo the ice, then that's another way that you could save yourself some money.
2: Thanks very much, Alice. Enjoy the tennis. Thanks for that you know. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Rachna Shanbhog. In London, this is The Economist.
4: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen